Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. The following podcast is from the Sword of the Spirit Bible Conference. This is the evening service of Tuesday the 24th of February 2015, entitled Life's Greatest Inside Trading Tip. And the Bible reading is taken from Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. Here's Brother Dave Kistler. Let me just ask you again uh, to pray about something. Before I came to the service this evening, of course, every day at 1 o'clock in the States, I do a radio program for 30 minutes. And uh, so uh, each day this week, uh, yesterday and today, and then again uh, tomorrow, perhaps tomorrow, we have our 6.30 meal tomorrow night, so I may not be able to do the program tomorrow. But anyway, yesterday and today, I've been doing it at 6 o'clock, finishing about 6.30, getting last-minute things together and coming over here. But right after we did the program today, uh, the other two gentlemen who typically share the radio microphone with me uh, were talking about what's coming up in the United States of America. I said something to you the other night, March the 3rd, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel, is going to be speaking uh, to a joint session of Congress. And uh, what we are endeavoring to do is not only be there and have a meeting with him individually as pastors, but we're trying, if at all possible, and this is the part I would like for you to pray about, we're trying to get a section up in the gallery, they call it, of the United States House of Representatives that can be designated just for pastors so that pastors can come sit together and show their support for Prime Minister Netanyahu and for the nation of Israel in uh, the middle of all the pressures that they're facing over in the Middle East. And so uh, an appeal has been made to the powers that be in Washington, D.C., and those that uh, allow people to come in and give tickets. By the way, it's a ticketed thing. You can get a ticket and go to any day's uh, events there in the House of Representatives or the Senate. Uh, but because the prime minister is going to be there, there could be could be an influx of people wanting to be there. And so um, we're trying to secure tickets for that. But a large block of tickets just for pastors to be able to sit in that one designated area. So would you pray about that and uh, continue to pray about our individual one-on-one meeting with him, that the Lord will continue to put all the components to that together. And uh, it was good news I got today. They have not said, no, we can't have that meeting with him. And so uh, what's good about that is it means the door is still wide open. And we're praying that God will continue to keep the door open and we'll have an opportunity to meet with him. I've learned this about Washington, D.C. Things change dramatically. In fact, you can have something planned for weeks and at the last minute, the entire schedule up there can dramatically change depending on what's going on globally, what's going on across the nation. And a couple of years ago, we had one of our congressmen scheduled. He was a believer, committed believer. He was committed to come to one of our gatherings and speak. And uh, the office kept calling me and saying this. Now, look, this is when he's supposed to get on the airplane. He's supposed to fly from Washington, D.C. to Charlotte, North Carolina. You're going to have someone there to pick him up. Had to be an American-made automobile. I mean, they have all these restrictions about how you transport elected officials. Had to be an American-made automobile and all this kind of stuff. And they said, you're going to get him to Hickory, North Carolina, get him back to the airport after the event. Yes, yes, yes. They said, now, please understand, something could happen at the last minute. And uh, something could change and him not get there. So here we've planned for months an entire event around this one official that loves the Lord and he's going to come be our keynote speaker. And honestly, 30 minutes into our event, there are people down at the Charlotte airport waiting for him to get off the airplane. And I told the gentleman who had gone out to pick him up, I said, now as soon as you see him and he is in your possession, you've got your hands on him and get him into the car and coming toward Hickory, call me and let me know. Well, uh, I am waiting, 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 waiting. Finally, the call comes through. We have him in our possession. We're headed toward Hickory, North Carolina. And I could breathe a sigh of relief because if he didn't come speak, I was going to be the backup. And I didn't want to be the backup. 
backup to a United States congressman, but he arrived just, just seconds before he was to walk into the pulpit and speak that evening. So things can change on a whim in Washington, D.C., so I'd, I'd appreciate your prayers that none of the things that have come, come about so far that are all good would change and that we'd be able to get that block of seats so we can be inside the gallery when he addresses both the House and the Senate on uh, March the 3rd. I appreciate that very, very much. It's an opportunity, an unprecedented opportunity for us as preachers to be able to have an impact in his life and on the nation of Israel. And so I appreciate your prayers about all of that. Matthew chapter number six, if you would please this evening. Matthew chapter number six, while you're turning, let me just ask you a question by way of introduction. How many of you know what insider trading is? insider trading. All right, I see a couple of hands. For those that don't know, let me give you a very basic but uh, somewhat lengthy definition of insider trading. Insider trading is the trading of a company's stocks or securities by individuals who have access to information that is not available to the general public. Let me repeat that. Insider trading is the trading, Brother Russ, of a company's stocks or securities by individuals who have access to information that is not available to the general public. Does the name Martha Stewart ring a bell with anybody? Martha Stewart, food preparer extraordinaire in the United States. A number of years ago, Mrs. Stewart was accused of insider trading. You may have read about it over here. She was accused of this, and what she had done really was illegal. She had purchased 4,000 pieces of stock in a pharmaceutical company. That pharmaceutical company was working on a cancer drug that was to be released not only in the United States but worldwide. It was going to be the latest, greatest thing to treat cancer. And two weeks before that drug was to be released to the, the, to the American and global public, the FDA in our country, the Food and Drug Administration, denied use of that drug and release of that drug to the public. Which meant this, the stock in that pharmaceutical company was going to plummet to the basement and sure enough it did. Before we, the American public and the global public, found out anything about that drug not being released, Martha Stewart heard about it because she got an inside tip. So what she did was this. She unloaded her 4,000 pieces of stock while the prices for them were still high. Two weeks later, the bottom drops out. Everybody else lost money. She actually made money because she had inside information that the rest of the public did not have. It is against the law to have that kind of information and then act on it. It's called insider trading. It's against the law. Now, here's the deal with Mrs. Stewart. She was ultimately not convicted of insider trading. She was convicted of lying under oath. She was sentenced for lying under oath to a prison in Alderson, West Virginia. By the way, any of you been to the United States of America before? Uh, a couple of you have. Have you ever been to, to Alderson, West Virginia, Brother Malcolm? Uh, Alderson, West Virginia is in the mountains of West Virginia. By the way, West Virginia, very mountainous state. If you could flatten it out, it'd be probably the biggest state in land area in the United States. But there's mountains everywhere. And Alderson, West Virginia has this prison there. And often I've thought, what must Martha Stewart, food prepare extraordinaire, wealthy woman, what must she have thought when she ended up in the middle of nowhere in a prison in Alderson, West Virginia. It had to be culture shock to her. But she was convicted of lying under oath. Now, may I say this? Many times in my country, maybe in your country the same way, it is not the initial infraction that gets a person into trouble. 
It's the cover-up afterwards when they lie. My dad used to say this, Son, honesty is not just the best policy. Honesty is the only policy. That is, you speak the truth. I don't care what's going on. Well, it would have been good if Mrs. Stewart had spoken the truth. She didn't. So she ended up being convicted of lying under oath, and she served her two years of jail time in Alderson, West Virginia, for lying under oath. Now, you say, why are you telling us this entire story? What is the point? In the passage of Scripture we're going to look at tonight, there is an inside trading tip. In fact, I'm going to call it life's greatest inside trading tip. There is nothing illegal about it. There is nothing immoral about it. Because in one sense, it's not an inside tip at all. You say, what do you mean by that? The tip is in the Bible. It's in the pages of the Scripture. Do you know anybody can purchase a Bible and find out this incredible tip? Did you know in my country, the Bible is still the best-selling book in America? Ought to hear an amen right there. By the way, I said best-selling book, not the best-read book, Brother Russ. I mean, if we would actually read it, all of us that buy the Bible, if people would actually read it, that'd be a different thing. But it's still the best-selling book. Would to God people would read it. But the fact is, people have access to this phenomenal piece of information that tonight you're going to have a leg up on everybody else because you've chosen to be here tonight and you're going to get some inside information that is not illegal or immoral. Anybody has access to it, but nobody else has chosen to come and be here tonight. Those that haven't, you have. So you're going to find a phenomenal piece of information. Life's greatest inside trading tip. You say, Brother Dave, what is it? Look at Matthew chapter number 6 and let your eyes rest, if you would, please, on verse number 19 where Jesus speaking says this, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, I want to implore you to look up at me for just a minute, and I want to explain to you what Jesus is doing in these verses that I've just read. He is presenting three truths. But he's presenting them in groupings of two. That is, with each of the three truths, he presents two aspects of that truth. One of those aspects, he says, don't do. The other one, he says, do this. In other words, you can't do both with each of these three truths. You have to choose one or the other about the two aspects associated with each truth. You say, Brother Kistler, what in the world are you talking about? All right, look if you would please again at verse 19 again. I want you to see this. I want you to see first and foremost two methodologies of life. Two methodologies of life. By the way, you can't choose both. You have to choose one of the two. The first one, Jesus says, don't do. For example, look at verse 19. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth. In other words, don't lay up treasure here on earth. And by the way, not trying to impress you again, but that entire phrase, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth, that entire phrase is one Greek word, and the Greek word is thesarizo. Thesarizo. There is a negative in front of the word thesarizo, athesarizo, which means don't do this, negates this. You say, preacher, what does that mean, thesarizo? By the way, any of you ever heard of a thesaurus? A thesaurus, my mom again was an English teacher and she taught us how to use a thesaurus. You know what a thesaurus is? It is a treasury or a collection of words, synonyms that mean the same thing as other words. So it is a treasury of words. That's where we get the word thesaurus from, thesaurizo. Don't 
Treasure up for yourself treasures upon earth. Don't do that. Now, why does Jesus say, don't do that? Well, look at the rest of the verse. If you treasure up treasure here on earth, you need to understand one of three things is going to happen to it. Number one, the Bible says, treasure not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt. Do you understand if we treasure up treasure here on earth, we run the risk of what we've hoarded up. We run the risk of moths getting it. Brother Larry, a number of years ago, uh, our family uh, left our home and uh, we got into our uh, travel trailer that we traveled all over America in preaching the gospel. And we were literally, literally, brother, gone from our house for seven months. We did not Rifka see our house for seven months, which means this. We had to have somebody prepared to come take care of the animals. We had to have somebody come and check on the house from time to time, make sure the air conditioning is working because it was in the summertime. They had to come as it got to the colder months and check, make sure the heat's working as it got colder. So we were gone from our house for seven months. Can you imagine trying to pack for yourself, your wife, your three children, and put all of that into a 40-foot-long by 8-foot-wide travel trailer, and you're going to be gone from your house for seven months. Well, we learned over the years, Brother Russ, some things you need to buy double of. For example, you need to have two irons. You put one iron in the trailer, keep one iron in the house. That way you don't have to move an iron from the house into the trailer. You have two ironing boards. But, you know, when it comes to clothes and things like that, you can't have double clothes, so you have to carry your clothes from the house into the trailer, and you have to pack all of this stuff, and we're going through all of this preparation for seven months of being gone. Well, I'm putting all my shirts in the closet, in the bedroom of the trailer, and uh, I thought, you know, I'd gotten all the shirts I needed, but when we got to our first place of ministry, uh, my job, and I'm just going to let you know, Brother Malcolm, my job was to do the ironing, okay? Uh, any of you men iron? Okay. Do you really, Brother Carl? Wow, that's, you, you iron too, bro? Wow, somebody else raised that. Do you iron too, my friend? That, that's awesome. You guys don't look like the ironing type, but I mean, that's amazing. I mean, these are men's men, and they know how to use an iron. Do you vacuum? Do you vacuum? Do you do that? Okay, I, my name is Dirt Devil Dave. I, I vacuum at our house too. Okay, I'm a, I'm a vacuumer and an ironer, and I don't mind doing it, really. So my job when we would get into a place was to iron all the clothes, my clothes, the kids' clothes, if my wife needed anything ironing. So I'm in the process of ironing everything. Brother Russ, I go to the trailer closet where my wife and I kept our clothes. I look for my favorite white shirt that I thought I'd put in there and shock of all shocks I'd forgotten my favorite white shirt now do you know guys how frustrating that is to have seven months being gone from your house and not have your favorite white shirt by the way I bought this shirt at that French store in America called Target you ever, you ever shop there brother Larry it's called Target T-A-R-G-E-T -E but anyway we, we sort of dignified a little bit and call it Target but anyway uh, Target they had this shirt no kidding no, a shirt that normally would cost you about $75 they had it on sale for 10 bucks 10 quid. Is that amazing or what? So I bought this thing. 100% cotton. But you know those 100% cotton shirts, Brother Larry, if you spray a little starch on them like your wife did for my shirts the other day, you can iron those babies and they'll stand in the corner by themselves. I mean, literally. So this is my favorite white shirt. Well, I'd forgotten it. So for seven months, I didn't have my favorite white shirt. Seven months come and go. We get back home. I'm going through the process of grabbing all the dirty laundry out of the trailer, throwing it on the front seat of the car, going to take it to the cleaners. I grabbed all my shirts, and then I ran into my closet in the house, and sure enough, hanging there front and center where I'd left it seven months earlier was my favorite white shirt. I quickly grab it off the hanger, throw it on the front seat of the car, drive to the cleaners, pick all that stuff up in my arms, carry it inside, lay it on the counter, and I said, I need the, the suits 
cleaned. I need the shirts cleaned and pressed. Heavy starch. The guy said, I know that. That's the way you like them. So they'll stand in the corner by themselves. I said, yes, you've got it. He said, when do you need these, Dave? And I said, well, I don't want to pressure you, but I'm going to be leaving town again in just a couple of days. Can I get them in two days? Would that be okay? He said, Dave, not a problem. For you, I'll have them back in two days. Well, two days later, I went back to pick up all the laundry. And sure enough, he had them done. Well, Pastor, I've made a habit of lifting the plastic. I don't know if they do that here in England. Do they cover your clothes with plastic when you put? Well, anyway, I've made a habit of lifting the plastic up, plastic up, looking at the clothes to make sure all the spaghetti stains are out of the white shirts and so on. So I lifted the plastic, and there in front was my favorite white shirt. I noticed something, Brother Larry, the tail, the tail of the shirt, this part right here, from here, from here over, this section was gone. I mean, it was missing. And I'm looking at my favorite white shirt, and I said to this guy who's done our laundry for years, I said, uh, excuse me, what did you do to my favorite white shirt? He said, Dave, I didn't do anything to it. You brought it in here like that. I said, oh, contraire. No, I did not. I would have known if I brought my shirt in here and one-fourth of it was missing. I would know that. I said, what you've done, because this can't happen, I thought you've gotten the iron too hot. See, at a laundry, they don't iron with one of these. They have a big press, you know, that comes down, and you can put starch and pull the press down, and if it's too hot, it can scorch the fabric away. So I thought that's what's happened. He said, no, Dave, that's not what happened. That's not what happened at all. He said, uh, I haven't seen you in a while. Have you been gone from your house for a while? I said, yes, seven months. He said, oh, that explains it. I said, that explains what? He said, you've had some squatters move in on your property. I said, what are you talking about? He said, you've had some guests move into your house. I said, what in the world are you referring to? He said, their names are the moths. He said, come here, let me show you something. And he, he took me, Brother Peter, and he showed me where the, the jagged edge of the shirt had been, literally the fabric had been eaten away by the moths. Now, I'm going to let you know a little secret. I still wear that shirt. Because, Brother Russ, most of it's tucked in. Nobody ever knows the difference because it's my favorite white shirt. <laughs> Do you know if you hoard up stuff here on earth? Please understand. At some point... The malls are going to get it, right? Watch this. If the malls don't get it, the rust will. Look at verse number 19. Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt. That is, boy, this is a blessing tonight, Brother Dave. If the malls don't get my stuff, the rust will. That's the facts. By the way, how many of you drove tonight to the service? I'm assuming everybody did. Ever heard of a thing called dissimilar metal corrosion? You know what? Because you have been in the military. Do you know when the first airplanes that we made in our country to fly and fight in the military, and they built those airplanes, they discovered there's a thing called dissimilar metal corrosion. That is the fuselage of the plane, the wings of the plane was made out of one metal. But the rivets that rivet the steel or the metal together, they're made out of a different metal. And when two dissimilar metals touch, there's a process called electrolysis that is created. And it's a chemical reaction. There does not have to be water involved. No water has to touch it for it to rust. Just the dissimilar metals touching each other causes rust to form. 
Brother Carl, a guy told me, he said, if you could put one of those early airplanes inside a hangar, protect it from the elements, but put a movie camera filming that airplane for 40 years, and you could then speed up the film after 40 years, you would literally watch in fast motion the airplane disintegrate from rust caused by dissimilar metal corrosion. Now, I don't want to discourage you tonight. But I can hear it from in here. In fact, I can hear mine all the way back in North Carolina in the States doing this. I can hear, Miss Rifka, my car rusting because there's dissimilar metals all over my car. And yours out here in the parking lot and out front, there's dissimilar metals touching everywhere. You say, why would they build a car if they know that dissimilar metals touching causes rust? Can I tell you why car makers do that? They don't want your car to last. No, why would they want that? They want to sell you another one in about three or four years. Everybody with me? So they have dissimilar metals touching. My point is this. My automobile, your automobile. The wealthiest man in the world with a stable of fancy automobiles is going to have every one of them rust one day. Look, if we hoard up here on earth, which Jesus says don't do, He says, please understand... Methodology number one, treasuring it up here, don't do it. Because if you do, moths are going to get it. Rust is going to consume it. Look at this. Boy, this is a blessing. Or a thief is going to steal it. Oh, Brother Dave, what a blessing you are. Boy, you're an encouragement to us tonight. Hey, I'm just being honest. By the way, have you ever been broken into in your home? Oh, you're nodding. So, so have we. By the way, that's something where you feel like you've been violated. A number of years ago, Brother Russ, uh, we were getting ready to leave for several weeks of ministry and my cell phone rang and I answered it and there was a real pleasant young lady on the other end and she said this, she said, uh, is this Mr. Kistler? I said, yes it is. She said, well, Mr. Kistler, I just wanted to inform you we're getting ready to ship your latest installment of your Reebok tennis shoes. I said, you must have the wrong Kistler because I've not ordered any Reebok tennis shoes. And she said, well, sir, in that you are correct. You have not ordered a pair of Reebok tennis shoes. You have ordered 25 pair of Reebok tennis shoes. I pulled my phone down and honestly, Brother Larry, across the house, I sort of raised my voice and yelled to my wife. I said, sweetheart, you didn't order a pair of Reebok tennis shoes and used the credit card, did you? She said, nope. I said, Rachel! Oldest daughter, you didn't take my credit card. Better not have taken my credit card in order to pay a Reebok tennis shoes. She said, no, Daddy, I know better than to do that. If I took your credit card in order to pay a tennis shoes, that'd be bloodshed and woodshed. I, I didn't do that. I said, good. I said, ma'am, listen, nobody in this house has ordered any Reebok tennis shoes. She said, oh, yes, you have. I said, well, where are they? I haven't seen any of them. I said, let me ask you a question. What is the address to which these shoes have been being sent? Because none of them have arrived here. She gave me address. I took out a pen and I wrote down the address. I begin to realize, I think what's happened is this. Somebody's stolen my identity. By the way, they talk about LifeLock in our country. You know, purchase a thing called LifeLock that protects you against identity being stolen and all this kind of stuff. People can steal your credit card information. They can steal all kinds of things. So I'm thinking that's what's happened. Sure enough, that is what happened. So when I got off the phone with that lady, I called the police and I told them what happened. I then called the credit card company, canceled the credit card so nothing else could be charged. And then when I got off the phone from that, I said to my wife, I said, honey, I'll be back in just a little bit. She said, where are you going? I held up my address that the lady gave me. I said, I'm headed to this address. 
So I went down to my car, punched the address, Brother Carl, into my GPS, and the nice GPS lady came on, and she said, drive to the end of the road, turn left, go down to the stop sign, turn right. All of you use a GPS. Men, do you use... Do you have a female voice giving you instructions? Do you? I asked a guy, I said, can I have a man on there telling me how to do this? So it's not, I'm joking, I'm just joking. But you know the way we men are. But anyway, the nice GPS lady said, drive to the end of the road, turn right, go to the next light, turn left. And so I head down 70. She says, now when you get up here to this road, make a right-hand turn, go underneath the motorway or the interstate, turn left and get on the interstate, go down to exit 125, get off the exit, which I did. She said, go to the first traffic light I did, go to the next traffic light I did, pass the next traffic light. She said, there's going to be a road on the right, turn right, go about a half mile down that road, which I did, and I pulled up in, set, in, in front of a couple of what we call in America apartments, duplex apartments. And at that point, the nice GPS lady said, you've arrived at your destination. I grabbed my phone, Brother Larry, and I called my wife. I said, honey, I'm here. She said very loudly, don't you do what you're thinking about doing. I said, how could you possibly know what I'm thinking about doing? She said, I've been married to you for almost 30 years. I know what you're going to do. You're going to go up on the door of the apartment. You're going to knock on the door. And you're going to confront the guy who stole your identity. I said, yes, ma'am, I am. And here's why. There's a pair of my tennis shoes on his front porch right now. And there was a box, Brother Russ, the size of a shoebox on his front porch that he hadn't picked up yet. Yes, I'm going to confront him. She said, honey... Have you ever thought that a guy brazen enough to steal your credit card information, assume your identity, buy 25 pair of Reebok tennis shoes, and by the way, not just Reebok tennis shoes, a bunch of shirts, $2,500 he had charged up. A guy bold enough to do that? Have you ever thought if you knock on the door and he has a suspicion, you're the guy whose identity he's stolen, he might be waiting on the other side of the door with a loaded gun? And when you knock, he doesn't even answer the door. He just blows you away right through the door. I said, sweetheart, you don't think he would do that, do you? She said, he could. You never know, not the world we're living in. You know what, Brother Carl, I I didn't go knock on the door. I didn't. I thought, you know, discretion is the better part of valor here. My point is this. If we treasure up here on earth, which Jesus says don't do, Moths are going to consume it. Rust is going to eat it. Thief is going to steal it. Now look at the second methodology of life. Now I want you to stay with me. We're headed somewhere tonight. Look again at verse number 20 of Matthew 6. But, here comes methodology number 2. Methodology number 1, don't treasure it up here on earth. Well, what do I do with it? Watch verse 20. But, lay up for yourselves treasures. Same word, Thessarizzo. Treasure up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth or rust doth corrupt, where thieves do not break through nor steal. In other words, don't keep it down here, lay it up in heaven. You say, Dave, how do I do that? We do that through investing our resources to serve the King of Kings and spread His gospel. Could, could I hear an amen there? By the way, this church supports missionaries. I am so thankful and honored to be one of your missionaries, for which I say thank you. Do you understand when the economy dips and things get tough, the 
The, the, the thought is, is this, and I hear it all the time in America because we've hit on some kind of hard times in America economically, and I hear this all the time. Well, what we're going to do, Brother Dave, is this. We're going to stop supporting missionaries. Can I say this? I'm begging of you. Please don't do that. The churches that I've seen in America that continue to support their missionaries and lay up treasure in heaven, not on earth, God blesses them long term. He does. And by the way, when you're treasured up in heaven... No thief can get to it. No moth can eat it. Rust can't consume it. Two methodologies. Now I want you to watch. Jesus deals with a second thing. Now stay with me. I'm, I'm headed somewhere tonight. I want you to see this. Not only two methodologies, but two mindsets. Two mindsets. Now before I get to that, I want you to look at verse number 21. This is a vitally important principle. For where your treasure is, present tense, there will, future tense, your heart be also. You say, preacher, what does that mean? Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Boy, I'm going to jump out on a limb. Any of you know what NASCAR racing is? Do, do, they, do they carry it over here, Brother Carl? No? How, how do you know about it? I'm just curious. How do you... How do you Okay, okay, so you know the, you know, I, okay, yeah, yeah, just, I mean, just, just sit in the car, turn the wheel left. I used to wonder how much talent is required in that. Just, just sit in the car, turn left, and just go in a circle. Until several years ago, I was in Atlanta, Georgia, and one of the biggest tracks in NASCAR, it's over a mile and a half long, it's an oval, is in Atlanta, Georgia. And the church I was in, Brother Larry, had a guy in the church that worked at the Atlanta Motor Speedway. He drives one of those big trucks that has a jet engine on it. So if it rains on the track, they have three or four of these trucks, that if it rains on the track, they stop the race. And once it stops raining, they send these trucks out on the track. They turn on these big turbine jet engines, and they actually dry the track with a jet engine. He drove one of those trucks that drives the track, Brother Antonio. He said, Dave, have you ever been on a mile and a half, 27-degree bank oval have you ever been on one of those? I said, I've never been. He said, on Monday, if you'll bring your Ford F-350 crew cab dually 7.3 liter turbocharged diesel engine pickup truck, if you'll bring it just one block from the church onto the property of the Atlanta Motor Speedway, I'm going to let you drive your pick truck, pickup truck around the Atlanta Motor Speedway three laps. I said, are you serious? He said, as a heart attack, I'm serious. So on Monday, I went to the Atlanta Motor Speedway. He met me at the front gate. He let me take my truck onto the track, and I started driving. He said, now keep your truck up along the top of the track. The reason he wanted me to do that is because there was a guy named Bobby Hillen. Now, you may know who Bobby Hillen is, Pastor, but they have a thing called the Craftsman Truck Series that is part of NASCAR racing. They have the cars, and then they have the little mini trucks. The Craftsman Truck Series is what Bobby Hillen raced in, and he had his little truck, his little Chevy truck, racing and practicing on the bottom of the Atlanta Motor Speedway. So technically, Brother Carl, I'm at the top of the track. He's at the bottom, the apron, they call it. He's going around the track. I'm going around the track. So I've told people I raced Bobby Hillen at the Atlanta Motor Speedway. I mean, we were on the track at the same time. Now, he made three laps every time I made one, but we were on the, on the track at the same time. It was awesome. Do you know when you come out of the straightaway and you hit that 27-degree bank, you feel like the truck's going to roll down the track. So you have to press the accelerator, Brother Russ, keep that baby going so she stays stuck to the track. So I'm doing about 80 miles an hour plus around the Atlanta Motor Speed. It was awesome. So I realized, you know, it does take a little bit of talent to do this. 
My point, though, in telling you that is this. Do you know there are people in my country who on Sunday morning will miss church so they can be at the NASCAR race? Do you know what, Brother Russ? They invest everything they've got into going to NASCAR races. Is there anything wrong with going to the race? The answer is no. But if you put that above God, we, we got a problem. Everybody with me? Where your treasure is, watch, where you put your money, where you put your time, where you put your energy right now, presently, that's where ultimately your heart at some future date is going to go. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So, Brother Russ, it starts so subtly, doesn't it? We just start investing a little more time in hunting. Anything wrong with hunting? Of course not. Fishing. Anything wrong with fishing? Of course not. NASCAR racing. Anything wrong with NASCAR? Of course not. Football. We talked about it last night and laughed our heads off in here about, about the football here. Aston and, and Birmingham City. And, and I want to go to one of those games. The brothers told, don't go to that game. I mean, it gets brutal. I want to go to that game. I do. I want to see it. Is there anything wrong with going? Of course not. But if that takes precedence over God, we got a problem. See, there are people in this country, like there's people in my country, that put all their money and their time and their energy and their attention into things of this life. So you know what happens? Their heart gets drawn only to the things of this life. And we forget there is a life after this life that we need to be investing in, trying to reach people that don't know Jesus with the gospel. Two methodologies, treasure it up down here, treasure it up in heaven. Jesus says, don't treasure it here, treasure it up in heaven. Now watch verse number 22. I want you to see this. From two methodologies, Jesus moves to two mindsets. Two mindsets, two way of, ways of thinking. Watch verse 22. By the way, the verses I'm about to read to you have been called by some Bible scholars two of the most difficult verses in all the Bible to understand. You say, preacher, why would they call them that? Well, watch verse 22 and I think you'll see it. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. Now, look up at me for a minute. I'm confessing my own ignorance. If thine eye be single, Brother Russ, I used to think, it's saying instead of having two eyes, you need to have one eye like a cyclops. If your eye be single, obviously that's not what this is talking about. Everybody with me? Well, what does it mean to have a single eye? It means this. By the way, it's a Jewish colloquialism. Do you have colloquialisms in England? Brother Carl, we have them in North Carolina. There's two of my favorites. I love them. Can I share them with you? The two, you heard them, Miss Rivka, when you were in North Carolina. You probably heard them down in Mississippi and other places in the South. The two colloquial expressions are these, bless their heart. Any of you ever heard that? The other one is, God love them. Do you know what those two expressions, Brother Rush, you, I mean, you can say anything in the South about somebody as long as you follow it up with one of those two expressions, bless their heart or God love them. For example, have you seen Mrs. Smith? Man, she's gained weight, God love her. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I heard one of my friends say this. Wow, that is one ugly woman. 
Man, she's so ugly. If Moses had seen her, there'd have been another commandment. Bless her heart. Those are colloquial expressions. To have a single eye does not mean being a cyclops. It was a colloquialism to the Jewish people that meant this. Please hear me out. To have a single eye was their way of talking about someone viewing everything through a generous viewpoint. Let me put it in. Look again at verse number 22. The light of the body is the eye. Therefore, if thine eye be literally, if thine eye be generous, if you view everything through a generous vantage point, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, what does an evil eye mean? Any of you have a teacher like I had? I had a math teacher and she had an evil eye. I mean, she'd look at you like this. I think that's why I didn't like math. She also taught German. I struggled with German. She had that evil eye. You know what? Well, it's, that's not what this is talking about. To have an evil eye was, again, a Jewish colloquialism that meant to view everything through a greedy viewpoint. Now watch again verse number 22. If therefore thine eye be single, generous, if you view everything, everything that happens through a generous viewpoint or a vantage point, everything about you will be full of light. Watch the next verse. But if thine eye be evil, if you view everything through a greedy mindset, thy whole body shall be full of darkness, if therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? You say, preacher, help me understand that. Can I show you the difference between having a generous mindset and a greedy mindset? It's one of my favorite stories. It comes from this country. British literature, I loved it. My mom taught it, as I told you the other night. I love British literature. Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol. Brother Carl, every year. It comes on television in America. I want to watch it. That one, and there's another one called It's a Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart. Isn't that an amazing movie? Phenomenal. Oh, black and white, but it's great. In Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol, do you remember the story? It starts out with the owner of the business, Ebenezer Scrooge. And he's so miserly, he won't throw another log on the fire. And the place is freezing, and you got little Bob Cratchit. I kind of picture him, Brother Malcolm, as a mousy guy. I don't know if he was, but he's sitting there, and he's filling out the paperwork, and he's freezing to death, and he's trying to get up enough courage to ask Ebenezer, because it's Christmas Eve, can he get off a little early? And so finally, he summons up enough courage, and he says to Ebenezer, you know, Ebenezer, we got the little crippled son named Tiny Tim, and, you know, it's Christmas Eve, and my wife's making a nice meal. Could I get off a little early? Do you remember what Ebenezer thunders back at him? He said, if I had my way, every idiot who went about with a Merry Christmas on his lips would be boiled in his own pudding with a stake of holly driven through his heart. No, you can't get off early. Do you remember? Do you know Ebenezer Scrooge is the embodiment of living life, viewing everything with an evil eye, greedy, stingy, Give as little of my time as I possibly can. I mean, keep my life and my time and everything about me. Is there any shock that all through that story of Christmas Carol until at the very end, Brother Russ, every time you see Ebenezer show up in the story, everything around him is dark. Dark. Then he gets those visitations from the three... Christmas angels, you know, one past, one present, one future, and it changes his 
approach, his viewpoint, doesn't it? And at the end, he's a person full of light. Everybody understand? See, we can opt for methodology one, and that's view everything through a greedy mindset. Jesus said, don't do that. Or we can view everything through a generous mindset. Jesus says, do that. By the way, I don't know how many of you will recognize this name. R.G. Letourneau. As a 17-year-old young man, R.G. Letourneau in the United States of America in the state of Texas was injured in an ironworks accident. A piece of iron fell on him and his parents were told by the doctors he will never walk again. But see, R.G. Letourneau as a young man had repented of his sin and put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And as a 17-year-old young man, he was a young man of great faith. And he prayed and said, oh God, I believe you've got something for me to do in my life. And you know what God did? God healed him of his injury. The doctors were stunned. R.G. Letourneau entered the business field. He began to be very, very successful. So successful that he was studying his Bible. And again, folks, this is not necessarily the point. I'm just giving the illustration. He found that the scripture says if you'll give 10%, of your income to the Lord. That's really what the Lord asks. We all know that. He said, Lord, I'm going to give 10% of my income to you. I'm going to live on the other 90%. You know what he did, Brother Russ? He didn't just say it. He did it, and God blessed his life. The Lord began to load him up with more blessings, and he said, you know, Lord, I'm going to put you to the test. I'm going to be a man of great faith. I'm going to try to give you 20% of my income, and I'm going to invest it in things that you're interested in, and in ministry, and I'm going to live on the other 80%. He didn't just say that. He did it. And there came a time when he said, I'm going to give you, Lord, 30% and live on 70 And he kept upping it till he inverted, turned upside down the paradigm he's giving God 90% and living on 10 do you know God kept blessing his life to the point brother Carl when he died out of his own personal income not his business his own personal wealth he was supporting over 100 evangelists full-time so they didn't have to worry about anything he was paying their way so they could be out preaching the gospel you know, he got the message, viewing life through a generous mindset. You say, Brother Dave, I bet he had a lot of friends. Yes, he did. Well, you say, well, the Bible says in Proverbs, and it does say this, wealth maketh many friends. That is, if you've got a lot of money, everybody wants to be your friend. By the way, Pastor Voss used to say this, where there's a will, there's usually relatives. And there's a lot of truth to that, isn't there? You know, I know people that have tucked away a lot of money and their kids are going to fight and bicker and get all angry over it after they die. I don't know how wise that is. My point is simply this. R.G. Letourneau had a lot of money. He invested it in people and in serving God. But there's other people that have more money than R.G. Letourneau had. And they're not. They're not a person filled with light. Let me mention this name. Boy, is he prominent in our country. Donald Trump. The Donald, they call him. The Donald. One of America's wealthiest men. By the way, I read one of his books a couple of years ago called The Art of the Deal. The Art of the Deal. You know, in that book, he made this statement. I have no friends. I thought, no, wait a minute. 
Proverbs says, wealth maketh many friends. You've got a lot of money, Donald. You've got surely a lot of friends. He said, no, I don't. Let me tell you why he didn't have any friends. It's his spirit. It's how he views life. He doesn't view it generously. He lives life greedily. Here's what he said. He said, the reason I have no friends is this. To have friends, you have to trust people. His exact statement, Brother Russ. To have friends, you got to trust people. He said, doing what I'm doing, making the money I'm making, I can't trust anybody. So I have no friends. I thought, what a miserable way to live. And what an even worse way to die. Look, folks, I'm not a wealthy man. Now, God's been good to me. Don't misunderstand. But I tell you what, I am wealthy in another sense. Brother Larry, I'm wealthy when it comes to friendships. Some of you are part of God's wealth to me because you're my friends. And my life has been enriched by getting to know you. These young people at this conference this week, I didn't know them before I got here. I went over today. I'm telling you, as we embraced before we left, that's wealth untold because they're my friends. Donald can keep his money. Everybody want to say amen? We have a wealth that goes beyond material possessions. Two mindsets. Greedy, generous. You can't have both, you got to choose. So two methodologies, two mindsets. There's a third thing Jesus presents. You can't have both ways relative to this. You got to choose one. Look, if you would, please, at verse number 23. He gets to the whole point here. Two masters. Two methodologies, two mindsets. Now he references two masters. Look, if you would, please, at verse number, actually, 24. No man, no man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one, cling to the one, and despise the other. You cannot serve God and... What's the last word? God and what? Mammon. What is mammon? Give me a synonym. Help me. Mammon is what? Money. As we talked about the other night, stuff. You can't serve God and stuff. Money. Now let me say something. Please hear me out. Look at the first part of verse 24. No man can... What's the next word? Notice it does not say no man can have two masters. At the end of the verse, it doesn't say you cannot have God and money. It says you cannot serve God and serve money. You say, preacher, what is your point? Now, folks, please hear me. Is it wrong for God to have blessed a person and them have worked hard and accumulated some things? Is it wrong for that to happen and God bless them? The answer is no. Do you know this Bible I hold in my hand is full of people who were quite wealthy and they were Christians. Do you know what the Bible says in Genesis 13 about Abraham? The Bible says Abraham was loaded down. That's the Hebrew term. He was rich in cattle and silver and gold. The word rich means he was loaded down with cattle, silver and gold. Do you know his nephew Lot wasn't doing so bad either? In fact, they were so blessed that the land couldn't sustain both of them together, so they had to go their separate ways, so they had enough land to care for their flocks. Was it wrong for Abraham to be wealthy? No. It doesn't say you can't have God and have money. It says you can't serve God 
and be the servant of money. Everybody with me? You say, preacher, what does that mean? Help me understand that. I just came back in January from a meeting in Miami, Florida, First Baptist Church, Westwood Lake. Brother Russ, for 25 years, that church has been a vital part of our family. We've been down there about every two years, every three years. They have a large Christian school. When I first went there, they had 1,200 young people in that Christian school. Four times a day, I would speak in chapel to the young people at school, and then I'd preach in church at night five times a day. You talk about being exhausted when the week was over. I was absolutely exhausted, but it was awesome. I love the young people like I love the young people there at this conference. They were absolutely amazing, predominantly Cuban young people because of the Cuban influx into Miami. Awesome people, phenomenal people. When I was there five years ago, there was a gentleman who came to me after one of the services, and he said, Preacher, can I talk to you for a minute? I said, Absolutely. So we stepped out of the flow of traffic as people were leaving, and he said, Dave, he said, I am a realtor. He said, I sell real estate on South Beach, Miami. If you've ever seen pictures of South Beach, it's some of the most pristine, most expensive real estate anywhere in the world. He said, before the economy took a downturn a couple of years ago, he said, I made in real estate sales in one year $30 million. That's a lot of money. Wouldn't you agree? He said, now you can ask the pastor if I'm telling you the truth. Well, I thought, well, I'm going to. So when we were done talking, I asked the pastor, he said, Dave, everything he told you is absolutely 100% true. He was telling you the truth. After he told me he made $30 million in one year, he went on to say this. He said, Dave, I have a home in Switzerland. I have a home in the Caribbean, and I have a nice house here in Miami. I've seen his house in Miami. It's very nice. It's very beautiful. Never seen the house in Switzerland or in the Caribbean. But he said, Dave, when the economy took a downturn, when the economy kind of tanked in America and around the world, he said, I had to let go of the house in Switzerland, had to sell the house uh, down in the Caribbean. He said, the house in the Caribbean, though, was one of the last things I let go. He also said, Brother Russ, I had a classic car collection, 30 classic cars. He began to name the classic cars. Now, forgive me, I'm a car nut. I don't have many cars, but I just love them. And, and I started drooling, Brother Carl, when he was mentioning these cars. I thought, wow, you had one of those? That's incredible. I would have loved to have seen it. He said, yeah, I had 30 of them. He said, I kept them under lock and key with a security system here in Miami. He said, you know what I would do? He said, I'd go down to the warm weather spot, my house in the Caribbean. And he said, the house is right by the ocean where the ocean laps up against the shore. And he said, you know what? I'd lie down at night and I'd hear the ocean lapping up against the shore. But he said, I couldn't sleep. He said, do you know why? I said, no, I can't understand. If you can't sleep down there, you got a problem. He said, well, I had a problem. He said, this was it. He said, I kept thinking, what about my classic cars back in Miami? What if somebody bypasses my security system? gets into the garage where my 30 classic cars are, takes a key and scratches down the sides of my classic cars and ruined the paint. He said, Dave, I literally was going nuts. Worried about my classic cars. He said, so you know what God did? That's the way he worded it. You know what God did? I said, no, sir. What did God do? He said, the Lord sent along a downturn in our economy. He said, I had to sell the house in Switzerland. Had to let go of the house in the Caribbean. Last thing he said, I turned loose of. Oh, it was tough at first. But he said, I had to sell the classic cars. Every one of them. Gone. And then he looked at me and Tony and he said this. He said, do you know what I'm going to do when I finish talking to you? 
I said, no, sir, what are you going to do? He said, I'm going to go home. I'm going to pop myself a bowl of popcorn. I'm going to open up a Coke and pour it over some ice, and I'm going to drink me a Coke and eat some popcorn, and I'm going to watch the news for about 30 minutes. And after I do that, I'm going to put my head on a pillow, and I'm going to sleep just fine. See you tomorrow night. And he left. You know what he was telling me? You know what he was telling me? I'm free from my cars. I don't have to worry about the stuff. Is it wrong to have? But when you become a servant to it, let me word it this way. It's not wrong to have, but it sure is wrong for the stuff to have us. Can I hear an amen? There's a part of me would like to back up. The first time I came here, preacher, 1992. Is that right? 1992? 91, 92. See, in 1991-92, I didn't have a house. I lived in a 40-foot by 8-foot trailer. Preacher, that had to be tough. I didn't have a yard, which means, Brother Russ, I didn't have to have a lawnmower. Yes, sir. Amen. See, all I would do is pull my trailer up in front of a church or in the back of a church and we'd park it there and they'd have nice lawns and somebody else mowed the lawn for me. I didn't have to worry about any of it. See, now I have a lawn. Am I thankful? Of course. But see, a lawn demands a lawn mower. And that demands gasoline and oil and repairs. You've got to sharpen the blade. You've got to take care of all the stuff. You know there's a part of me that would like to go back where I didn't have to worry about any of this stuff? Before I came here, Brother Larry, it dropped down to one below zero in North Carolina. That is unheard of. Do you know I was scared silly? I'm leaving Saturday morning or Friday morning, Friday, whenever it was, to come, I lost track, to come over here. I just know that when I left, the temperature was going to plummet and I had to be concerned, Brother Larry, about something I didn't used to have to be concerned about. Are the pipes in the house going to freeze up? Is this going to happen with these frigid temperatures? And I'm worried about all of it, and I'm not there to take care of any of it. What if something happens? Do you know there was a time I didn't have to worry about any of that? Do you know what I'm saying? There's a part of me like to go back when I didn't have all that stuff to worry about. Because bottom line, folk, is this. All that stuff isn't going to heaven with me. And it's not going to go to heaven with you. Brother Larry, have you ever seen a guy in, in the hearse in, in his coffin on the way to the funeral home and attached to the bumper of the hearse is a speedboat? Because he's going to take the speedboat with him? No! No! It's all going to stay here. And it's all going to burn up one day. The only thing we can take to heaven with us are the souls of people we lead to Christ. One last name I'm going to mention and we're through. Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott was a native of Portland, Oregon. He was a runner, Brother Rush. You may know this. He was a wrestler. He attended Wheaton College, Wheaton Bible College in Wheaton, Illinois. God called him into the ministry. And he made this statement. 
when pressed. Pressed. Oh, Jim, you're an excellent athlete. In fact, some people thought, maybe so, from what I've read, it was probably true. They said, you can run in the next Olympics. You're such a great athlete. You could wrestle, maybe, in the Olympics. Why don't you stay in America when you graduate from Wheaton College? Why don't you stay here and earn a lot of money? And Jim said, no, God's called me to go to Ecuador to minister to the Aka Indians. A-U-C-A, Aka. Aka is Ecuadorian for naked savage. These people had never been ministered to before. Nobody had taken the gospel to them. No, I'm going to Ecuador. Jim, 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 stay behind. Running the Olympics, gain some fame. He made this statement to that friend, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I'm going to Ecuador. He was pressed on another occasion. Stay in America, Jim. Now this statement's not as well known, Brother Russ, but I like it almost better. He got so frustrated, Jim Elliott did, that he said that he bowed his head and he said to God, Oh God, save me from the dreaded asbestos of materialism. Wow! You know what asbestos is? It's a flame retardant. It'll put out a fire. Save me, God, from that which will extinguish my heart of passion to serve you. It's called materialism. My country's eaten up with it. I'm going to Ecuador. And he went. If you know anything about the story, he was joined by a young pilot named Nate Saint who had been flying cargo for a group called Missionary Aviation Fellowship, MAF. Jim Elliott appealed to Nate Saint and said, look, you don't want to just fly inanimate objects, cargo. You'd like to do something really challenging. Carry the gospel to the Aka Indians. I've got a game plan, Jim said. And Nate bought into it. He said, I'm in. Jim Elliott understood we need three more at least to help us. He found the other three men in the form of a gentleman named Roger Udarian, Ed McCulley, and Pete Fleming. I'll not tell you all three men's stories, but I will say this. Ed McCulley was at Northwestern University working on a law degree. And Jim Elliott said, you don't want to just practice human law, do you? Wouldn't you like to deal with God's law and take the gospel to people that have never heard? And Ed McCulley said, I'm in. And he joined the team. Roger Udarian was a military man. He actually fought at the Battle of the Bulge. Jim Elliott said, when you get out, don't you want to serve the king? Roger Udarian said, I'm in. So those five men went to Ecuador, took with them their wives. You'll remember, if you know the story, it's very well portrayed in a movie that was released in America called End of the Spear. There's also a great book called Through Gates of Splendor that tells their story. They took Nate Saint's plane up and they flew it over a sandbar in Ecuador where they'd seen these Aka Indians come out of the jungle and they'd look up at the airplane and they'd think, wow, that's a big bird. I'm sure that's what they thought. But what Nate Saint and Jim Elliott and Roger Udarian and Ed McCulley, what they would do is drop trinkets out of the plane down to the Aka Indians, food items sometimes, just, just to let them know we're friendly. We don't mean you any harm. They're trying to set up something. And finally, they feel the time is right to actually land the plane, make face-to-face -face contact with the Aucas, the naked savages of Ecuador. Brother Larry, every summer my brother and I would go to my grandmother's and she kept life magazines. 
She kept them stacked up on a bookshelf. And there was One Life magazine. We'd thumb through them. And in those days, there were some kind of cutting-edge pictures in there. And I remember pulling a black one. It was totally black on the front and black on the back. It had the little life emblem up in the corner. But on the front of it, it said this in big, bold, white letters, Five missionaries die in Ecuador. I didn't know anything about them as a 13-year-old boy, but I found that magazine, and I thumbed through it. And Brother Russ, even in those days, even by today's standards, really, they were taken from a distance, but they had pictures of the corpses of those men. They landed that airplane on that sandbar, and they made an advance toward the jungle where evidently the Akas emerged and the Akas were experts at carrying their spears behind their back. And they were experts at pulling the spear up with razor-sharp precision. They could throw it and literally pierce through the body of their enemy. And it is believed by those that found the bodies on that sandbar. It's believed that they were taken by surprise by the Ecuador, Ecuadorian naked savages because all the spears were through the front of their bodies, Brother Russ, not one was hit in the back, which means none of the men turned to run. Maybe they didn't have time to turn. They were all pierced through from the front. Jim Elliott's body is lying on the sandbar. Roger Udarian's body is off in the water. Nate Saints is there on the sandbar. They found Pete Fleming's body downstream. Ed McCulley was never recovered. Five missionaries die in Ecuador. I remember reading that. And thinking, wow, wow, these guys are young men. They died for what? By the way, that's what the magazine asked. They died for what? In other words, they wasted their life. Can I tell you unequivocally, no, they did not. They did not. If you've seen the movie End of the Spear, you'll know that those men died that day, but the wives, a couple of them, stayed behind and continued the ministry to the Alka Indians. Brother Antonio, that entire village was won to Jesus Christ by the wives of those men. By the way, at the end of the movie, End of the Spear, there is an extra scene of Steve Saint, Nate Saint's son. And he has with him the very man who threw the spear through his daddy's body and killed his dad. And they're sitting in a car, and they're driving through a McDonald's drive through in the United States. And they film the entire thing, Brother Russ. And they pull up. Over here, because the steering wheel is on the wrong side in America, would you agree? It's on the wrong... Anyway, and so the guy's sitting over here, this, this, this man who killed Steve Saint's daddy, and they drive through, and the window comes down, and he orders into the little box. He pulls up to the next window, pays. The food is handed out to him, and it is priceless. Here is this Ecuadorian man trying to figure out how this works. You talk here, and up here, food shows up. He's thinking, man, we got to have one of those in Ecuador. That's awesome. Do you know that man is now a preacher in Ecuador? He indeed is no fool who gives what he can't keep to gain what he can't lose. Look, what I'm trying to say is this. 
We're living in a phenomenal time to be a witness for our Savior. And it's all about investing for eternity. That's why when I get back, I'm going to Washington, D.C. That's why, with the help of the Lord, my schedule is so full. My wife says, honey, you're 55. You're not 25 anymore. Slow down. I said, the Bible says we ought to bear the yoke in our youth. I think I'm still young, so I'm going to keep going at it. The bottom line is this. This is a time to be engaged in serving the king and not hoarding up down here, but laying up treasure in heaven, reaching people with the gospel. Father, would you speak to us tonight? Lord, would you change the way we think? And Lord, again, rather than viewing material things as being our pursuit, though it's nothing wrong with having things, I just pray the things don't have us. Father, rather than viewing things as being the thing that's most important, Lord, may we let you shift and change and alter our thinking tonight. And may we opt for methodology number two, laying it up in heaven. May we opt for mindset number two. A generous way of thinking and looking at life. And may we opt for master number two. Not stuff, not money that we serve, but Lord, we serve you. Lord, I would also pray if there's anyone in this room that Jesus, they don't know you yet as their Savior. They don't have the assurance that when life ends down here, which it will one day for all of us, they don't know for sure that they're going to go to heaven. Father, I pray you would arrest their attention and show them how desperately they need you. Show them, Lord, how much you love them. And Father, I pray that tonight you would work a work in their heart where they'd be willing to come to you, Jesus, and commit their life to you. We'll thank you for what you do and how you work in our midst. Now, friends, our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. You have listened incredibly well, for which I thank you. I want to ask you just a couple of questions. Do you know that when you leave this life, which we all will one day, the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. We're all going to die one day if Jesus doesn't come back first. Do you know that you're going to heaven when you leave this life? I do, not because I'm good enough to earn eternal life, because Jesus loved me enough to forgive my sin when I ask Him to, to save my soul when he, I ask Him to. It's not because that I'm anything, it's because of how great Jesus is. If you know that Jesus is your Savior, and you know absolutely for certain that when life ends for you down here, you know you're going to heaven. If you know that's true, without looking to see what anybody else does, if you know you're going to heaven because Jesus is your Savior, I wonder if you'd be willing to lift your hand and just hold it up long enough for me to see it. Dave, I know. I, I know I'm going to heaven. Thank you. God bless you. You may put your hand down. Now again, no one's looking but just me, and I appreciate all the cooperation. My second question is this. Is there anyone in the room tonight you do not yet know that you're going to heaven when life is over down here? I appreciate your honesty, and 
just keeping your hand down. I really do. What I'm wondering though is this, are you concerned enough about your own eternal future? Are you concerned enough about it that you'd be willing to let me pray for you? I don't mean call your name out in my prayer. I, I've never done that. Not going to do that tonight. But I sure would like to have the privilege of anonymously praying for you, asking that the Lord will work in your life and that before it's too late, you'll get this thing of your eternal destiny settled. See, the fact is you can know before you leave tonight that your sin's forgiven, that heaven's going to be your eternal home. You can know that. Is there anyone in the room that would say, Dave, you're talking to me? Couldn't raise my hand to the first question. I don't know for sure I'm going to heaven. But yes, I would let you pray for me. Thank you. God bless you. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. I'm going to pray in just a second. Of course, not by name. Is there anyone else? Dave, I'm just not sure that I'm going to heaven. Thank you. Thank you so much. God bless you. Thank you. Father, I pray. First of all, thanking you, Lord, for how much you love us. And Lord, I especially thank you tonight for some in the room who've lifted their hand and they're admitting, I'm not sure I'm going to heaven yet. Lord, I thank you for their honesty. I thank you for their transparency. I thank you for their concern for their eternal future. Lord, help them to understand they need to be greatly concerned. And Lord, I thank you, Lord, that I have the privilege to pray for them. And Lord, I do pray that before it is eternally too late, I pray that they'd make the decision, and that is what it is. It's a choice to give their life to you, ask you to forgive them and save them. Lord, I pray that they'd be willing to do that before it is forever too late. And Lord, I would ask tonight very specifically that they might even be willing to let someone take a Bible and from the Scriptures, from the Holy Bible, just simply introduce them to you, Lord Jesus, and show them how they can know for sure heaven's going to be their eternal destiny when this life is over. Father, I pray they'd be willing to get it settled is my prayer. And Lord, I'll thank you. Now, friends, I want to ask if you'd just continue for a moment just to keep your heads bowed. Pastor Larry, would you be willing just to do this, to stand right in the middle of the aisle at the back of where all the seats are? Right there, thank you. Now, I'm not twisting anybody's arm. I'm not trying to make someone do something they don't want to do. I just want to give you an opportunity. If you lifted your hand and let me pray for you, I want to thank you for doing that. It was my privilege, my honor to pray for you. But I want to just plead with you for a second. If you were really serious about your interest in knowing you're going to heaven... You were serious enough to let me pray. I wonder if you'd be serious enough just to let someone take a Bible and show you how you could know Jesus. Again, I'm not twisting your arm. I just want to give you this opportunity. Pastor Curtis is standing at the very back. If you'd be willing, because no one's looking but me, you could get up from where you're seated. You could just step to where he is. He'll put someone with you that'll take a Bible and in a quiet place just show you who Jesus is and how you can be forgiven. How you can know you're going to heaven. I just want to give you this opportunity. Would you be willing to step to the back where he's at? Well, Dave, I just can't do that. Would you be willing to do this? We're going to close in just a second and when we do, We've got something 
little bit special planned after the service. You could step either to me, Pastor Curtis, maybe to a friend that you have confidence in, and you could say, I'd like to know more. I'd like to know that my sin's forgiven. I'd like to know that I'm going to heaven. If you'd speak either to me, Pastor Curtis, or to a friend that you have confidence in, we would love nothing more than to show you how you can know Jesus as your Savior and how you can know you're going to heaven. Please, I'm asking, don't leave the property. Go out into the uncertainty of the night without knowing that you're going to heaven. Now, friends that do know the Lord, I want to ask us one question. We have been given so many wonderful things, physical resources, time, health. We've been given a lot of things, automobiles, houses that we live in. All of those, all of those are wonderful gifts from the God of heaven. Well, Dave, I worked hard for it, I know, but God gave you the strength to work. It's all really from Him. Do you know those things are not for our benefit, really? Is it wrong to enjoy things? Of course not. But we're to use the things God's given us to invest, to reach people. That car could be used to bring people to church. Those other resources God's given can be invested to reach people with the gospel. All I'm asking before I close tonight is simply this. Would you consider how God might want you to alter some things in your life so that you invest a little more wisely for the sake of reaching a lost world. That's all I'm asking. You've got talents, men, ladies, gifts. By the way, tonight, Miss Rifka used one of her talents. She's used that talent in our country, singing for God's glory. Miss Hannah, who's here again tonight, sang last night and employed her gift whether it's our treasures, our talents, our time, whatever. They're all gifts from God to be used. Let's use them, shall we? Instead of hoarding them for ourselves. Father, would you bless now as Pastor Curtis comes, as you've so wonderfully done already this week, each evening, guide him by your Spirit as he closes the service. And Father, I pray for some again in the room that don't yet know that they're going to heaven. Father, may they be willing to speak to one of us tonight let us show them from the Word of God how they can know they're going to heaven. And Father, for all this, we'll give you glory and praise because you, Jesus, are worthy of it all. For it's in your name I do pray. Amen.